don't just build a product. Go to market while you're building the product, because otherwise the risk is that you're building a product that no one will buy. Welcome to the podcast B2B SaaS CEOs with me, Joseph Olsen, as your host. I'm the CEO and founder of VAM that helps sales teams close more deals and book more meetings through video messaging. The idea to this podcast was born because one of my personal goals is to be a world-class B2B SaaS CEO, and therefore I need to learn from the best. And I want to take you with me on this journey. My name is Lars Grønnegård, CEO and co-founder of Dream Data, and you're listening to B2B SaaS CEOs. Hi and welcome, Lars. Hey, Josef. Very good to meet you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Calling from uh, Copenhagen. A bit rainy and gray here, but uh, sun is shining inside always. <laughs> I said this when I interviewed Jeppe also, uh, Mr. Prio. Uh, I love Denmark because it's my second home. Uh, my grandfather was from Denmark and I was actually a Danish citizen, not Swedish, until I was uh, 20. So mm. I love Denmark. But we are not here to talk about me. We're here to, to talk about you, Lars. So first thing first, always, what does your company, Dream Data, do? Please do the elevator pitch. I'll, I'll do my pitch. So, so uh, the company is called Dream Data, and uh, we're a B2B SaaS startup out of Copenhagen. And fundamentally, we help B2B go-to-market teams figure out how their revenue machine works. That makes sense. And then we help them optimize that machine and basically drive revenue in a more efficient way. So that's a very high-level pitch. And then, of course, there's a lot of detail to it. Uh, about how we do it and so on. Then we move on, Lars, to storytelling. I love to hear stories. So I want to hear the story about you as a CPO, a trust pilot, then figure out and got the idea of Dream Data. How was it born? It's a long story. So you can say we were of, we're three founders of the company and two of us were working together at Trustpilot, like you say. And we were running uh, the tech and product teams together. So we were like peers. Uh, Ole was the CTO. I was the CPO of the company. And Trustpilot is it's a great company, uh, super successful. The monetization in Trustpilot is maybe a little bit different than what most people think. It's not a media company like many other review platforms. Um, Trustpilot is really monetized as a B2B SaaS. So we all know what that is. So you're selling subscriptions. Uh, of a piece of software. So we were responsible for building the software, but also for the in sort of the whole consumer side of the platform. And that consumer side of the platform was driving a lot of leads for the B2B SaaS part of the business. So you can imagine you're a shop owner and you discover that there's somebody wrote a review about you on Trustpilot. And then you go to Trustpilot and you realize, oh, that's a review of me. What is this thing? What can I do about it? And then you engage with Trustpilot, but as a business. And then you become a lead for the sales team. So that was uh, a very sort of fundamental part of the go-to-market of Trustpilot. But <laughs> that sounds easy. How well did that actually work? Like how much business did that channel actually drive in terms of our pipeline uh, and, and new business revenue and also retention revenue? That was actually quite hard to figure out. Um, and, and what we were running into was 
a more fundamental problem of B2B go-to-market that if you are not a 100% sales-driven team, if you're doing uh, marketing-led growth or product-led growth or a mix of product-led and sales-led, then you're doing a good thing because you're doing something that your customers want. They want to try the product and they want to investigate themselves, etc. So you're doing a very good thing and marketing is a super efficient way of growing your company, but you're also creating a very big problem. And the very big problem is that to do that very good thing, you use a lot of technology, which is all, again, great for us who are selling technology, but you're using a lot of tech. Of course, you're using your CRM system, uh, but you also have a website that is now super important to you. You're buying ads, you're sending emails, you're letting people into your product and letting them try it. And what happens is that it creates like a swamp of data in many, many different systems. You have your customer does not, from a data standpoint, live in one system anymore. He lives all over the place. And if you want to figure out how much revenue is actually tied into a specific activity, or if you want to say, okay, now I'm choosing between doing this activity and this activity, but which one is actually the best in terms of driving business for the company, then you've, you have problems because you can't answer that question anymore. And that was the problem we had. So we solved that in like, first you can say, we went and looked for a product to fix it because we thought, okay, we're not alone. Lots of companies are doing this. There must be a, and we were using standard products like Salesforce, HubSpot. We're using a product called Segment for tracking, very standard. So we thought, okay, that's going to be a product for this that we could just buy and <laughs> press a button and it's fixed, but it didn't exist. And then we went through the tedious process of solving it inside of Trustpilot. So building basically uh, what a BI team is doing, you know, move the data, work, 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 work. Half a year later, you have some half-assed answers and then you start making decisions. And we went through that process. And I think in that process, we realized, okay, one, this is a fundamental problem that any company that's doing sort of a mixed go-to-market motion is suffering from. And two, it's insanely powerful when you solve it and you, you know, it's also something that can be productized. And that was the founding sort of thesis of the company. And then we went out and did what you should do, sort of tested if we were completely <laughs> pointing in the wrong direction. I think that's always a good assumption that your ideas are not very good. So we started out by testing if like, would other people actually see this as valuable? And as we sort of saw, okay, we can get other people to buy into this thesis and pay for solving it. Then we started building a product company around it. That was a storytelling mode. Yeah, but you you, you got me. I, that's why I love to hear stories because I was so much more curious like, hmm, when is the right timing for BAM to strike a deal with Dream Data? Uh, yeah. The story is the best. Thank you for sharing, Lars. Thank you. And um, I have two big topics here in my podcast. You know this. It's leadership yeah. and business development. And then here is yeah. some fun facts, curveballs, etc. I will actually shift around now yeah, because yeah. we are already talking about this is hardcore business development. So I want to start yeah. with business development. So first thing here, can, can you share from your best practices some of the best tips and tricks regarding go-to-market strategies for a startup? I think if you are, when you're starting up completely from scratch, like we were, it's super important to 
like one, don't just build a product, go to market while you're building the product, because otherwise the risk is that you're building a product that no one will buy. So always test your sort of most risky assumptions. And the most risky assumption as a startup is usually that if I invest a lot of time in building this product, someone will buy it. That's a super risky assumption. So turn it around. Uh, go and figure out if somebody actually wants to buy the product you're thinking about and then build it if somebody wants to buy it. And the other thing is build as little as possible, delay any commitment in terms of uh, you know anything that is a commitment, delay it as long as you can because that way you're sort of you're mitigating risk. If you can you know if you can get very far with a prototype, well then go quite far with the prototype before you build. And then, of course, assume you'll have to do a lot of cleanup uh, and sort of uh, <laughs> you'll have a lot of work cut out for you. But it's good work because now you know you're working for something that matters, right? You know that, you know, the features that you thought would be awesome, somebody's actually going to use them. And then it makes sense to build them, right? Don't go the other way and build a lot of features and then realize that nobody wants them. So that's a fundamental uh, way of thinking about the early stage sort of go-to-market. So mix up um, product development and go-to-market at that very early stage. And then I think we made maybe um, one thing I would consider like a mistake, something I wouldn't do again. I think we went, our idea of what does it mean to focus was maybe a little bit flawed. We thought that saying, okay, we are a product for B2B companies that was focus and i realized sort of that that was not focus enough like when you are a small team you should focus way more i think um what sort of changed my mind was somebody told me told me about a company that was going to market and the icp was a b2b SaaS companies that didn't have a user interface so they were sort of pure api product that was their icp uh, for the for the first 1 million euros or dollars of revenue. And then I realized, okay, that was, that was a different kind of focus from what we were doing. Um, so I think challenge yourself and, and, and think of like how, how, how much can you focus? Can you find a very narrow ICP that you can deliver your initial value proof on? Like maybe build the first half a million, a million uh, dollars uh, euros of, of uh, annual recurring revenue um, and stay there because that way you're sort of focusing, finding a small group of companies that you can make like very, very enthusiastic about your product. There we have it again. They're, they're like, when I'm done with my podcast, I will be Mr. Find ICP because I hear this so many times yeah. and it's so powerful. And, and the first the first part, I don't hear as lot, but that, that, is, that, that is a clear point of view that you or a product person, because this is something my co-founder, he, he always tell me like, Joseph, we shouldn't build anything before we have data points, X, Y, Z, etc. Get, yeah. So spot on here, Lars, thank you for sharing. We move on to KPIs. Yeah. I want to know now, which top KPIs on a company level are the most important for you? So I would say we're, we're a venture-backed uh, company. So when you set out on that journey, you're sort of committing to certain things, like you're committing to building a company very fast with a significant revenue base quite fast. So for us, 
the two numbers we follow the most are um, revenue growth. So basically, what is our uh, total ARR stack and how is that growing? Um, and then as we have sort of built up some, some ARR stack, then we are also turning to follow um, revenue retention really closely. So net revenue retention, making sure that we have uh, that we have net revenue retention on our uh, existing customers. So those are the two key numbers we follow from a business standpoint. I don't think it's very different from what other uh, early stage SaaS founders would be looking at. You can say they are, of course, they, they are maybe lacking indicators. So if you, you should be looking at other things uh, before that, right? Um, are you on, on, the, on the growth side? You gave me two really strong business KPIs, but if we share at least one product KPI, what would you say are the main product KPI from your perspective? I, I think it's the main KPI at all is uh, usage KPI. So we care about the number of users in a company that we have using our product uh, because we see that as a strong indicator of, of product adoption. So that is maybe the number one KPI we're following. At different times, we're following other metrics. We have a free product. Uh, so we have a free product and we have a thesis about sort of a self-service product in this space. And that means that we are right now very closely following sort of our initial uh, activation metrics. So basically, of all the people we convinced to take up our free product, how many of them actually log in? How many of them connect our tracking? Uh, and then how many later we'll get to how many come back, but we are sort of starting at the very early end of that funnel. Um, but those are maybe more tactical uh, key results that we're following um, because of where we're feeling the biggest pain at the moment. Yeah. And this uh, leads me into my VAM-oriented question because I'm building a sales tool with the core video, so I'm super yeah. curious about outreach. So I want to know, Lars, what would you say is the best way to do code outreach to you? <laughs> I would say so successful code outreach, I experience it in, in many different ways. I think email can work, calls can work. I think in the end, for me, what what makes someone successful is not really something under their own control. It's where I am in my cycle relative to that product. So if you're reaching out with a product that it is not solving a problem I have now, I'll be quite sort of standoffish. But if you're reaching out with a product that I know I will be needing uh, or a problem I know I'll be solving over the next six months or maybe even right now, then then I'll take the call um, and take the meeting. Uh, so it's it's not super helpful for people doing outreach because it's really about the timing uh, of the outreach, and that's not a that's not really a lot. Of course, you can you, you have your sort of triggers that help you evaluate when to reach out, but in the end, it, it's more mostly about timing. So the timing. And then if you're going to want to get Lars into a meeting, you need to spin it right now. And then I think just being quite, for me, being quite transparent about what is the company that's reaching out. I think a lot of people 
fail to sort of articulate the name of the company very clearly. And on a bad phone line, it can be super annoying. And actually, like, usually that's my number one entry point is like, who's calling me? Sometimes it's a company I know, and then I'll know immediately whether I want to listen to the pitch or not. And I'll just say, I know what the product is. It's great, perfect timing. Let's take a meeting. Or yeah, I know what product X, Y, Z does, and the timing is not great for us right now. But I would say I'm, I'm open for outreach. I also do like respond positively on LinkedIn. There's not really any, any sort of method that I'm against. I think it's mostly about being succinct to the point and also respectful of people's time. So if I say, I know this isn't for me, it's great. Or if I say, sometimes I say, this isn't for me, but try again in six months, then I think we'll be in a different spot. Like I had like, yeah, but I think there are many examples of this. Yeah, I think we stop there and move on because you're a busy person, so we don't have too much time. And uh, this means that we leave the business development segment and move into a fun fact. I want to know, Lars, a fun fact about yourself that most people don't know about. So I, I think you there are definitely many fun facts. I think one of them is uh, one of my first, the, the, maybe the first thing I did in my career at all was sharing sheep at the Faroe Islands. I think that was pretty crazy. <laughs> um, so I that think that's a fun, fun fact, fact that not a lot of people know. Uh, it's not a career I, I took up. I wasn't very good at it. And I managed to to share a few sheep and then I nipped one of them and I felt really sorry for it and then I didn't do it again. This is actually things like this I fishing for when I asked this question. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, being a bit more serious then, mistakes. Yeah. What's the biggest mistake you have ever made in business? Yeah. I, I mean, I think, uh, I think that's like what I was talking about, about sort of... Um, our ICP and approaching that and not really getting what it meant to focus. I feel that that was a pretty significant mistake and something where we could have um, made a good, like we, we could have, things would have accelerated faster if, if that hadn't happened. I don't think I want to take blame for it all by myself. I think we were a team uh, l learning that lesson, but that was a, I, a quite sort of impactful mistake where, uh, uh, you know, if you're doing this journey, you actually don't have to do that. You could uh, actually just focus and not first unfocus and then focus. So I think that was a pretty significant one. Here we have it again. ICP, ICP. So many smart people like you, Lars, are, are telling. There are many versions of it. And I think one another thing is, for instance, uh, if you're doing any kind of product uh, business, you think about product market fit. And I think, again, it's it kind of a fundamental mistake that I always thought of it as like, okay, there is a market and now I have to build a product that fits the market. But sometimes it's much easier to go the other way. Like, okay, you have a product and now I'm going to go and look for the market that works with this product. Uh, because your product might actually maybe be super excellent for some narrow segment. And depending on what you want to do, you know, it doesn't mean that you can't expand that segment later on, but maybe that particular segment has so much pain and <laughs> your product is actually sufficient. Whereas if you move out to other segments, the pain isn't as expressed and then you don't have product market fit yet. 
So I think this sort of, uh, it's a bit the same, like not thinking about the market, not thinking about ICP, not thinking about who you're selling to enough. Uh, I, I think that was a, that's a big learning for me. Powerful. And um, this leads me into topic of your choice. Yeah. You, for a few minutes, will talk about something that you are nerdy and very passionate about. So it's time for topic of last choice. And I think my the, the big thing for me at the moment is um, if I should stay within, I'm staying within the business side of things. I could also go outside of that and talk about pizza, but I think it's maybe off topic. Some have done it. So it's, <laughs> it's totally your choice. Yeah. Uh, but no, I think for me, uh, go to market data. Uh, it's also the space we're in using our own product to figure out what is actually going on in our revenue machine, um, what is converting, what's not converting, what is our conversion actually from demo to sales qualified lead, demo to new business. So sort of going very deep in the data about our uh, go-to-market, that's where I spend a lot of my nerd time. Um, you can say our product is this you know, we clean up that swamp I was talking about, <clears throat> which basically gives you a very nice, uh, one of the things we give people is like a very nice database of all this data. And for me, um, querying that database, figuring out answers to my questions about our go-to-market, I spent a lot of their time there. And uh, I, I taught myself SQL, so like database query language, um, to be able to do this. Uh, and that has like, uh, yeah, that's, that's my nerd time. And I s enjoy it a lot. And um, why, if you take it one level deeper, is it just because of the company you're building or is it coming from a like bigger, when you were younger curiosity, why, if we go one level deeper? So I think it's both that it is a very important problem for us at the moment, both as a company but also it's a problem we solve for other companies. So there are many reasons for me to engage a lot with that problem. I would say going to the level of, of sort of querying the data directly and working very directly with the data, I think that's just my nature. I always like the sort of very technical side of things. And it also speaks to maybe, you know, I like to sit alone with a computer and look at the screen and nerd. <laughs> <laughs> and, and nerd out with data. It's just something I love. I don't know if it's something, maybe it's something in my childhood. I don't know. <laughs> that, that was a perfect period for this topic of law choice. So we leave it with that and move on to an external question from a listener. Yeah. And today it's time to hear from Thibaut Hartwig. And this is his question. Hi, my name is Thibaut Hartwig, and I am, according to very secure data, the world's best VAMer. And I have been credited with the awesome opportunity to ask you a question. My question to you is the following. What is the most common strategic change that you have seen your customers take on after they have reached your aha moment using your software? I would love to hear that answer so I can take it on to my own startup, Organize, which you might want to like to check out. Thank you so much and have a wonderful day. Yeah, I think 
the biggest strategic change that that uh, a, a person or a company does with like once they sort of reach that stage of using our product is that they start optimizing campaigns, anything that they're doing in that go-to-market, they start optimizing towards actual sort of revenue results, be it building pipeline or closing new business. And I think that's a very fundamental change uh, that happens in a company when they adopt the product. Yeah, I, of curiosity, I have a follow-on question on Thibault's yeah. question. Thank you, Thibault, for the question. And that is, what is your aha moment if you want and can share I think where people really feel that they are getting uh, an aha moment is when they see a sort of a complete customer journey mapped out, just one. So I think once, if you're just looking at accounts saying, oh, we had 50 of this type of journey and they came from this, that's a little bit unpersonal. But when they see that view of, okay, this deal that we won, this is actually what happened. And you get that complete picture and you realize that now you can ask, you know, aggregate questions across all of those customer journeys that are in that database. That's sort of the aha moment for people. So seeing that single journey is uh, a pivotal moment for people. Yeah, I'm glad that I asked this following question. And uh, yes, once again, Thibaut, thank you uh, for being a, a quick part of this episode here with Lars. But we need to move on. So leadership. Yeah. First thing here, always, are you a good leader, Lars? Yeah, I think I'm the type of person who's tempted to say no. <laughs> um, but I think it depends a lot on who you ask. Uh, I think for some people, I'm a good leader. For some people, I'm probably a crap leader. Uh, I think I fundamentally believe a lot in a lot of leadership is about getting out of the way and letting people, uh, you know, you set a team of people that want to go in the same direction as you, but then you don't want to sort of be getting in their way all the time and telling them what to do. So you sort of step aside and enable them to do what they think is bringing you forward, like in that direction you're all taking. And I think for me, that is, if, if, if you are a person who likes that style of leadership, then I think I'm a really good leader. If you are a person who fundamentally would like to be told what to do, you probably will not like me very much. Talking about superpowers as a leader, because I think you have already at the end there tapping into it. Yeah. What, what would you say are some of your core superpowers as a leader, Lars? I, I think, uh, yeah, getting out of the way, um, helping. So I think as a leader, you should, be careful to not get in the way of people doing what they are good at. And of course you should be an enabler. Uh, so I think I'm quite good at that sort of like help out where you can. Um, but I would say in a setting like ours, which is a small company, um, there's not that many people that get in the way of people uh, doing their job, but in larger companies, uh, they don't have to be very large Then this. I feel that that is a superpower as a leader is this sort of clearing the path, uh, making sure that other people can can do what they are good at. And I feel that some of the leaders I have had that I enjoyed working with, that was what they were very good at. They were very good at sort of say, okay, Lars has a direction, he wants to do this. I hired him because he wants to do this. So now 
I'm going to get out of the way and I'm going to get other people out of the way so that he can do this thing that is beneficial for the company. Uh, so I think this sort of getting people out, clearing the path, I think that's a, a superpower. Um, yeah, I think then it's about like curiosity, questioning, uh, asking people. I think that's a, a generally a, a great superpower to have sort of being interested in what is the motivation behind something, trying to understand that. I think that's also a, a superpower. Moving on to bad things. Can you share what you think is the worst things about being a leader and how do you tackle them? I think one of the worst things is is sort of having to keep secrets uh, and especially like secrets that matter to people. Uh, I think it, I think you can you can also be super transparent and you can tell everybody everything all the time. But for me, that creates a situation where people are, are defocused. I mean, it's it can be bad things like you have to let some people go, and you have to keep that a secret from everybody until it actually happens. If you go out and say, "Hey, we have to let four people go," everybody will stop working and thinking about whether it's them. So basically you have to sit on, like you make the decision, then you figure out who is going to go. And then in the end, at the very last moment, you tell people, but this period where you're keeping a secret, it can also be a positive secret. It doesn't have to be a negative one. It could also just be, hey, uh, we're fundraising and it's going super well. I mean, that can also, if everybody's just sitting there and thinking, okay, like, oh, next month we're going to have $5 million in the bank account we can go and spend, and then they just don't do anything for that month because they're just thinking about spending the money. So it can also be positive things you have to keep from people. But this sort of sitting on knowledge that you know that people would overall appreciate to have, but you as a leader have decided that it's not beneficial for the company that they have that knowledge right now. I think that that's... That's not a. That's that that can be challenging and feel, you know. Because in general, I would say I I prefer being super transparent, but I acknowledge that with certain things, let's say you have to restructure. It doesn't have to be negative. It just be you have to restructure. So, you know, you have three products teams and they're working in like A B C, and now you want them to work in X Y Z instead, or split them into four teams. If you tell them a month before you do it. They will not produce anything for that month. Whereas if, so basically for a month, you have to sit on that information. You made the decision and you know they would actually like to know, but you don't tell them because then they will just stop working. And you want, you know, you want the best for the company. So I guess that's like, I think any case, any case where you have a belief that something is good for the company, but you also know that for some individual people, they would like something else. That's not, uh, I think that's just challenging for a, for a leader. Yeah, I think so too. Okay, last thing here in the leadership segment. If you have to summarize leadership from your point of view with one word, what would that be? I would go for empower. So empowering people. And I was debating whether say enable they're very close to each other, but I'll go with Empower. I made my choice. Empower, let's stick with that. And this means that we are entering the roundup. We only have three questions left. 
the classical ones. And first thing here, I love this question is, if you would give yourself, your younger self, when you were a younger CEO, one to three top things to think of that you now know that you didn't know, what would you tell yourself? So I will go with this one. Like Other people are motivated by different things than yourself. I think that would have been very good for me to know. Uh, I would have told them that uh, leadership is not about telling other people what to do. It's about enabling them, empowering them. And then I would go for my, if it was about sort of uh, becoming a successful startup founder, I would definitely share the part about the ICP and say, hey, B2B is not focus. You have to be more focused than that. <laughs> yes, we have three things. And now with this question, I'm just fishing for other smart, cool guests. Which other two B2B SaaS CEOs do you think are interesting and doing great stuff? And would like to listen to if I would interview them here in B2B Sauce CEOs. Yeah, so I have one. So, uh, and I, I name her often when I'm asked this question. So I really like uh, Stine, uh, who is the CEO and co-founder of a company called Openly here in Copenhagen. It's sort of a similar stage startup to our own. So uh, I think Stine is a, like, she's a successful CEO. Uh, she's very different from me. She is extremely passionate about what she does, and she's also very, very strong on building culture, I would say. Um, so I think she's a very good interviewee for a podcast like this. I, I don't have a second one. I'll just go with Stina. Then we stop with that. Uh, and uh, thank you for Stina. And last thing here, where will Dream Data be in five years? Yeah, I think Dream Data... We always wanted to build a company that was uh, about changing the way that you do go to market. So one of the fundamental things we will see in five years time is that we will be impacting go to market uh, much more directly. So I think automating revenue, uh, not just analyzing and recommending, but doing sort of real automation of revenue, we will be part of that. Uh, so I think that's a, an aspiration for the company to be that. And, and of course, then from a sort of company size standpoint, we will be, you know, your uh, 250, 300 people uh, offices in, in the States for sure. We have a big market in the States um, and a nice double digit AR number in millions and closer to 50 than to 10 for <laughs> I don't know. Almost 300 people. You have had a big impact of the whole revenue segment and 30, 40 or 50 million euros yeah, that'd be good. in ARR. Lars, I wish you and the whole team at Dream Data the best of luck with that. Thank you, Yusuf. And now I'm turning to you who has been listening. Two quick ones. Number one, press the subscription button because I have great episodes and guests here. And number two, Tell a friend or a colleague to listen to Lars in B2B Sauce CEOs. And Lars, a huge thank you for putting aside around 30 minutes of your precious time together with me to help the community and me to keep on learning. Thank you, Yusuf.